Hi and welcome back to episode 18 of CC Talks. We are a slightly diminished team this week, aren't we Jack? Yeah, James and Steve aren't here, they've disappeared on a charity bike ride and left it to all the main chels. Yep, so um, it's just the two of us, but never mind, we will we'll do our best, I'm sure it'll be up to scratch. Yeah, let's, let's hope so, <laughs> let's hope we keep it up to the normal standard, um, they've got faith in us and I, I hope our listeners do as well. Yeah, so I mean as always, I mean there is the only two of us, but let's do the register because it's tradition, so Jack? Here. Chels? <laughs> Here, sir. Sorted then. Okay, so we can't not discuss the result of the Champions League final. Um, I know we all placed our bets last week, to which I failed miserably, but I did um, I did prerequisite that last week, so I don't feel too bad about it. No, you shouldn't feel too bad about <laughs> it. You know, your you bet went the wrong way, but... It's it is what it is. It's a, it's a long game. It's a learning game. I'm just gonna quietly point out that I was right. Um, of course. Quietly. Quietly, yes. I, I'm not gonna gloat about it. I'm right, and we'll move on. But you've been doing some research regarding Liverpool and Tottenham, with the the spend the the way the two the two clubs who win the Champions League final have gone about spending in say recent years. Yeah, so I think what's really interesting with this one is that kind of the general school of thought with analysts seems to be that, you know, the best prediction of a team's league placing is is on how much it spends on its players. But Liverpool and Tottenham seem to book that trend, really. Um, I mean, Liverpool spent €297 million on players' wages um, and Tottenham spent €167 million. So, you know, it's not significant. I don't think it's as significant as other teams. Perhaps Man United certainly pay more. Manchester City definitely pay more. And then you've got bigger clubs in Europe, the the European giants, Madrid, Barcelona, Munich. They all probably pay more. I mean, Liverpool have spent quite a lot of money on transfer fees and obviously buying players like Van Dijk and Alisson who've came in um, for £150 million last summer will essentially always add to the transfer budget uh, transfer budget and wage budget. But when you look at what Spurs have done there, they seem to be they they seem to be the real book to the trend of they stay away from what other big clubs have done by spending a lot of money on players, spend a lot of money on wages. They always keep their wage their wage and transfer price to a limit. But that, as we've said in previous podcasts, could be linked to the, the Tottenham stadium. method. Tottenham method of running and what they've spent recently on the stadium. Yeah, billion pounds on the stadium. So, you know, got to cap the spending somewhere. <laughs> yeah, they do have to cap the spending. Yeah, I mean, like we said, and I yeah, Tottenham probably does book the trend more than Liverpool does. But I think what's interesting is the the way that the clubs kind of you know target their players. So we are attributing part of the Tottenham model. To the fact that they've spent a billion pounds on the stadium, but I think if you look at Liverpool's model, they are very data driven. They have a very data driven approach towards football. So they have analysts who have managed to acquire cheap and undervalued players from pools of talent that are relatively untapped by their rivals. Really, um, signing players from the bottom half of the Premier League, as well as obtaining players from smaller European sides who can't afford to meet the same wages that Liverpool can, and you know, it's evidently working. Yeah, it is definitely working. I think the biggest one to point out from there when you're saying lower ends of the Premier League or lower leagues would probably be Andy Robertson. 
the left back was signed from Hull um, for a cheap fee. I think it was in eight, ten million. Um, which is obviously he's now turned out to be the best left back in the country this season. It shows that the analytic side of transfers can can work and does work very well. Um, the the they can't be the only club that that are looking at it though. Other other Premier League clubs must be looking at their approach and thinking, oh, they haven't spent as much as we have, and they're doing better than we are. Yeah. So it's, it must, the technology and the use of data must be pushing forward further forwards with uh, Premier League clubs and other top European sides as it goes. I mean, you said um, you said earlier that they'd managed to get their their quant team has. Um, their quant team is similar or came from Tottenham, didn't yeah, they? Yeah, they took their two lateral hires from Tottenham, which is a bit of a blow for Tottenham, given that <laughs> Liverpool then beat them in the uh, Champions League final. I think, yeah, I mean, I, I, know, I know what you're saying, you know, if if this is the way that, you know, the direction that they're going, you know, it's obviously working, other teams are going to catch on and, you know, jump on, jump on board. But it's certainly what we say. We're very much, you know, we think that quantitative analysis is the way forward when you look at valuing players a whole team in general and managers um we we always go back to moneyball and the and the quote moneyball and we have used it before so it's not going to be our quote of the podcast no but it is you know it is essentially saying you need to buy runs as opposed to players yeah so obviously in football it's you're buying goals you're buying points on the board you aren't buying players if you want to win trophies if you want to win games you buy in points you buy in goals there's obviously the other side of it on the commercial side where if you buy a certain player you're also bringing in the revenue from shirt sales but that's commercial as opposed to winning winning games which is like you said it's going to be a bit sour for Spurs knowing that they took the Liverpool laterally took the quant team but it is it is quite an interesting one to be looking at and the value the value of football clubs uh Liverpool winning the Champions League um, and coming close last year, coming close to the Premier League the last few seasons, but especially close this year, the their income has basically skyrocketed. It has always been Manchester United being at the top of the Premier League, but it's it's Liverpool now. What's the value of Chelsea? Well, I, their their income skyrocketed in terms of broadcasting income. So they're they're going to bring in more than two hundred fifty million pounds this season in broadcasting income alone. Yeah, that's um, huge. Which is huge, yeah. And, you know, uh, we were talking about this in the office of the day. Liverpool has been a great investment for Penway Sports. Yeah. Um, I think they bought it back in 2010 for $500 million. And the club is said to have an enterprise value of around $2.4 billion now. Um, that was said by KPMG back in 2009, the start of 2019. So, yeah, it's, I mean, winning the, obviously winning the Champions League. Value say it was at two point four billion. They would have used the statistics as mentioned last week from twenty seventeen eighteen, won the Champions League, finished second in the Premier League. That value's probably already gone up, and if they keep on improving, I mean, if if I had to put my money on now, who I think would win the Premier League next season, I'd put my money on Liverpool to win it. So that means every year more investment, but more success. Enterprise value goes up, wage bills are going are probably going to go up a little bit, but using the clever analytics to keep maybe transfer fees down, it, it seems to be a good model that Liverpool have built. Yeah, be one to watch, that is for sure, see if anybody else jumps on. Okay, so we've been talking in the office um, recently about the MLS growing in popularity, haven't we? 
Yeah, it's a it's a growing league. The commissioner said that they're ex- expected to expand to thirty teams in coming years. There's a uh, there's apparently seven football specific stadium projects planned, which almost gives gives like the legitimacy to the league of it uh, it growing, growing in a rate that is probably more than any other league in the world. With the most notable addition being David Beckham's Miami franchise. That's meant to be coming, I think it's the 2020 season. So that's that's obviously the big one that's marketed well to, to watch out for. Yeah. And I think what's interesting with the MLS, well, you know, Don, Don Garver, who's the, who is the commissioner of the league, he said that one of the best things about the MLS is that at the start of the season, any team can win the MLS Cup because of the salary cap, which allows to keep a, you know, a level playing field and has actually produced... 10 different MLS Cup cham- uh, champions over the last 10 seasons, which is... Yeah, know, that's huge. Very varied. That's huge. You wouldn't see that in anywhere in Europe. You see the, the big teams, obviously, in every league more or less dominating. Every yeah. so often you get an underdog, but it's it's good that it's it's kept like that. But the salary cap in America is kind of an American sports thing. It's There's a salary cap, um, unless I'm mistaken, in the NFL and the NBA. So that's why one team that's got a lot of power financially behind them can't go in and buy all of the best players and dominate, which they have been able to do in Europe across that. Yeah, it's essentially what Manchester City have done, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it James could be what be Man City have done. James would be very annoyed at us for saying that without yeah. him here to back up his team. But yeah, I think it's an interesting one. And, and he has he's essentially you know, said that these plans for the Super League... Um, the champions that you know making it a super league are gonna do the absolute opposite of that and it's gonna create this kind of almost impenetrable league for the lower teams to to get into and that that sentiment's been very much reflected with the english you know the premier league and the liga um on wednesday all 20 of the clubs in the premier league released a statement declaring their strong opposition to the proposed reform, which would alter the structure, calendar and competitiveness of league football. So, you know, it's, we talk, we've spoken about this in quite a few podcasts now, and I think it is going to be an ongoing conversation until we see, you know, what the results are of the meeting. But there seems to be a lot of opposition to the proposed changes. And, you know, the, the English Premier League it isn't the only one. The Liga, seven clubs in the Liga have also, you know, released a rebuke. They've described the proposed changes as a frontal attack on the competitive balance and the stability of the domestic competition. I think it'll think? be I think it'll be interesting to see to see which which other clubs across Europe are willing to come out so publicly and shoot the idea down. It's the biggest it would be the biggest change to across European football ever. It's it's something that could like like what uh the commissioner of the MLS has said it would be very beneficial for the biggest clubs, but it would be crippling for smaller clubs. It would ruin the competition um, across Europe. It would ruin the development of domestic leagues. And the Premier League has been developed for a long time. La Liga has been. The Bundesliga has been developed. But other smaller leagues around Europe would never get to that level because as soon as they got the, the club's would potentially be in a position of being feeder clubs, which would ruin domestic growth. Yeah, and if it were to go ahead, although you know we're not entirely sure what's going to happen given the significant amount of opposition that seems to be arising, 
it would be interesting to see how such a significant change to the Champions League would impact international football. Yeah, I think if you look at if you look at where the the nationality of the players who play for the big teams is a lot of European players, there's a lot of but there's also quite a quite a high number of South American players and African there's a lot of African players who are now playing in Europe. Um it's it's a diverse set of players. And it would be interesting because You've got teams like Barcelona who have a B team in the lower leagues of uh, the lower tiers of the Spanish divisions. And would it almost end up being that, obviously, you've got feeder clubs, but what type of effect would that have on, say, the MLS? Because the MLS commissioner is very, very against this idea and backs the same, the same thing as the Premier League clubs of 20 teams saying no, but... The, the, Champions, the Champions League turning into a Super League wouldn't have necessarily a, a very direct effect on, on these other countries. But would it then, t- would it then have an indirect effect on the way that other countries gain income from players being bought from there as well? I know there's, there's always been a history of there being players bought from Argentinian and Brazilian teams. Huge, huge income for um, the club where Neymar came from, that Barcelona paid a huge fee from. If they were to have lower divisions underneath the Super League, would that actually just net basically turn that into something that is non-existent? Or would it turn it the other way and it go more outwards? It's it's something that would be it's an interesting concept to look at as to whether different different countries maybe Southeast Asia and the MLS because it's grown so fast uh, are there untapped pools of talent that aren't looked at as much now as they would be if there was a change to the league structure. Yeah, I mean it's certainly it's certainly something we're going to keep talking about. I'm sure as yeah. it crops up in the news, um, and it's and it's certainly something we'll keep you all updated with. And it's a big day in women's sports today as um, the Women's World Cup kicks off. Pardon the pun. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I did set myself up for that one, I won't lie. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a big day. So it's from the 7th of June to the 7th of July. And, you know, we, we were talking about this day in the office, actually. You were discussing the, the Women's World Cup advert. Yeah, it's uh, the advert by Nike for the Women's World Cup is it's very, very good. I didn't know what it was at first when it came on and it, it's just, it's put together very, very well and I think it's a good advert for, for women's sport. It doesn't only obviously show how good the women's super leagues became in England, but it shows how the game has probably developed across a number of countries by including uh, maybe who's thought about as the highest sort of female athletes in football across the world are all, are all in this. So it's it's impressive, and I think we're in for we're a good month of sport. It'll be interesting to see how obviously England ladies do, but I think USA and Germany are up there as being the favourites. Um, but yeah, I th- I think we'll do pretty well. Yeah, it's an interesting. It, we've said this before, and I'm sure we'll say it again. It's an interesting time for women, women's sports. There's lots going on. You know, there seems to be much more recognition for yeah. women's sports, and I mean, you know. Speaking of women's football, FIFA and the French Development Agency, you know, they've recently pledged to promote women's football in Africa on a long-term basis with the aim of making a lasting difference to communities around the world. So, and we've spoken about other deals that have, that have happened within the women's sports sphere. There really does seem to be this feel now in the industry of people trying to 
have a positive impact on gra- grassroots, the grassroots level for women's football. And I think it's it's an exciting time. And yeah, we look forward to watching watching the Women's World Cup. Yeah. Okay, so we're into the favourite part, arguably, I would say, of our podcast now, which is um, the Mourinho Minute. However, we forever fail to keep it to a minute. Um, perhaps one day we will achieve... 60 seconds but today is not going to be the day I don't think definitely not <laughs> I've got a lot to say to be honest so I mean, <laughs> last week we were discussing the possible takeover um, sale of Newcastle yeah um, which you are very excited about Jack yeah, the possibility is an exciting one yeah um, and Sheikh Khaled has apparently called for Mourinho or Arsene Wenger as the new manager um, so that's the that's the latest circling around Mourinho and I'm sure excites you. It, it would be exciting to have Mourinho. It seems to be that um, contract negotiations between Ashley and Benitez have stopped. Um, even though his, his contract runs out at the end of June, which is almost quite quite concerning. Because <laughs> if the takeover doesn't go through, I think we could be in trouble if we don't somehow manage to coax Benitez into signing a new contract. I think I don't think Wenger would come out of his his stage of retirement to to come and manage Newcastle. Um, I think he'll probably want to stay in France if he was to come out and be a big French club. Although Mourinho might be an interesting one. The clubs that so we could go there. the clubs that we originally thought that he'd go to have seemed to have got managers. Um, he said he he said before in the press that he'd quite like to go to a club where there's less expectations or there's not an instant expectation of winning everything. Um, w- would he go to Newcastle just on merit? No, but shake owners coming in, would he go to Newcastle based on money? It's a new challenge. Would he re- try and repeat Benitez's challenge of trying to go? It's something that would have to wait and see, but in all honesty, I think Benitez will stay and I think... I think the Mourinho and Wenger is just is just a newspaper talk, really. Well, we'll see. But I'm sure I'm sure it'll be a topic of discussion again in next oh, yeah. week's podcast. Hundred percent. Okay, so we're we've come to the end um, of of, our, of this podcast. Yeah, the end just, of the just end the two of, of us one. today. Um, we shall be back full full team next week. So all four of us. And we can hear from James and Steve how the charity bike red went. Um, but before we go, the Moneyball quote. Jack, you've picked this one out this week. Yeah, I've picked out the Moneyball quote. It's it's coming to a point where we did with Big Short, sadly, where we're, we're almost running out. But I tried to pick one that maybe links into the quantitative analysis of players, where we're talking about um, you you buy players for runs and not and not just for the name. So... The quote is, I pay you to get on first, not get thrown out at second, from Billy Bean of Moneyball. And I think it's it's quite telling when you look at the analysis. All right. Well, well thanks very much for that, Jack. And as always, we will be back next week, same time. Um, thank you very much for joining us. And we hope you have a lovely weekend.